0: Hebrews chapter 13, we'll begin reading down in verse number 1. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith followed, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, and today, and forever. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people, with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well please. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you'd speak to each and every heart, that you'd give me the words and the truths to communicate. Lord, that you'd help me to preach with unction, with power. Lord, in such a way that would not magnify me or any of us here, but would uplift the high and holy name of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that each and every heart would be touched in the way that is uniquely needful for them. I don't know the heart's condition of the people in this room, Lord, but you do. You know if there's any that are lost and that they need to be saved. And Lord, you know if there's any in this room that are backslid and need to be reclaimed. And Lord, you know if there's any that are downcast, and need to be encouraged and uplifted. Lord, I'm just, I'm just confident this morning that you're up to the task, that you're fit for the hour. Lord, that your grace is sufficient, that your word is powerful, and that we can find in you all that we need to face the days that we're living in. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll find there is a theme uh, that is pervasive from the first chapter to the very last verses that we read uh, here before us and even on to the end of the book. And that theme is Christ is better. Uh, the Apostle Paul, and we'll go ahead and just get this out of the way, I think Paul wrote Hebrew. And you say, preacher, I don't believe that. And that's fine, you don't have to believe that. Uh, you say, preacher, I'm mad at you. We well, all have to take a number, amen, and get in line, and it's a long queue at this point. All right, so, uh, but I do believe the Apostle Paul penned the book of of Hebrews. I bet we can agree on this this morning. Whoever penned it down, we know the Holy Ghost was the author. But you go ahead and forgive me if I say when Paul wrote, and I'm probably going to keep saying it because it's just my custom to do so. When Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, we find that from the very first chapter to the end. Paul's intention is to lay beside one another the Old Testament form of Judaistic worship centered around the sacrifice of the altar and the worship in the tabernacle. To lay that beside the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And his thesis and theme is this singularly. That when he, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day, as someone that knew the law of God, as someone that was zealous of the law of God before he got born again, or the Old Testament form of worship, he was zealous of it, as someone that was well acquainted with and distinctly and intimately aware of what it taught, he said, this is the conclusion I have come to, that everything that the law was, Christ is better than. Now let me say to you very clearly this morning, The Lord Jesus is not in opposition to the Old Testament law. He Himself said He came not to destroy the law. Listen, children of God, He did come to fulfill the law. Amen? He did come to complete, to bring to fruition, to do that which the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. And as He is uh, writing and pinning this uh, letter that is to uh, Jewish believers, and people have often asked, who's the letter of Hebrews written to? And, And well, Hebrews. Somebody say amen there. But uh, people say, is it written to saved people? Is it written to unsaved people? Is it written to confused people? Uh, who is it written to? And it would appear to me that the book of Hebrews is written to Jews that are at the door of salvation. And you say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Are they saved or are they not saved? Well, probably some of them are probably some of them weren't. But those that find themselves at a crossroads at a crisis point. It could be Jews that were surveying their long history of the law and asking themselves, Can I let that go to pursue after Christ? And he was writing to them, Probably it was to those that had just got born again and were suffering the cultural and religious persecution that so often accompanied a Jew that received the Lord Jesus Christ. The family would disown them. They'd buy an empty casket and bury it and treat them like they were dead, like they didn't exist anymore. They'd be castigated and, uh, and ridiculed and ostracized out of society. And to those people, the Apostle Paul pins down these words and says, listen, keep the faith, press forward, trust the Lord. You've not made the wrong decision in choosing Jesus Christ. And then a third group he was probably uh, intending this for is those that have been saved maybe many years, but had never grown in the faith and still found themselves to be immature as regards the truth of the Word of God. And he's saying, go on and go deeper in the things of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who he is writing this to. He's writing it to New Testament believers who are standing as Jewish individuals and they are looking backwards at the law and they are looking forwards at the Lord and they have a decision that must be made. After he has well exhorted them throughout the book of Hebrews, he comes to chapter 13 and begins to give them just little tidbits, little little sort of nuggets of truth that they need to understand. We read through the catalog of them as we move through the the verse about brotherly love and about entertaining angels and about remembering people in bonds and about marriage and the consecration of it and about being content in life with the Lord's presence and His faithfulness and trusting the Lord in tumultuous days. How many of you know we got to trust the Lord in tumultuous days? Can I tell you something? This is all I'm going to say about it and I'm going to be done. Uh, What happened Wednesday, no matter how you feel about it, didn't surprise God a bit. It didn't change God a bit. Uh, You may be happy that it happened. You may be irritated it wasn't worse. But one way or the other, God's still the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Then he says in verse number 9, we ought to be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. We ought to stay the course in the truth, the Word of God, as it's been taught to us, and we ought to have our hearts established with grace, not with meats. Let me say, I'm a meat eater. Somebody say amen right there. I don't think God's saying anything against a good beefsteak here, but what He's talking about is those that saw their righteousness as vested in the maintaining of dietary rules and and uh, statutes and laws in the Old Testament. And he's saying you ought to recognize that it ain't those things that makes you fit for God, it's the grace of God that makes us fit for God. Ain't nothing you and I could do to ever make us what God wants us to be. Ain't nothing you and I could ever do to make us a better Christian in our own strength uh, than, uh, than we are. But let me tell you something, the grace of God is what makes us fit for the presence of God. Verse number 10, the apostle makes this statement. This is what I want to talk about this morning. Looking at these Jewish believers or those that were facing and looking and and, and contemplating on Christ, he made this statement about those of us that are born again. He said this, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought. We have an altar. Now what I'm preaching on this morning is not this row of carpeted steps in front of us, although I will say this to you this morning, that that is a physical representation of what ought to be an action, and attitude of the heart whenever we come and approach unto God. I'm not against the altar, I'm for the altar, amen? There's some folks who want to scorn the altar and criticize the altar and try to pick apart the altar. But let me say this, I found when I'm in the right condition, all I want to do is go to the altar. Somebody say amen right there. I, I, I'm, but I'm not talking about a physical place this morning, but rather I'm talking about the reality of having a meeting place with God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read the greater context of this passage, what Paul is saying here is this: We have a choice that must be made. If we go to Jesus Christ, there's some things we got to leave behind. Now he is talking in the in the context of it about the worship of the tabernacle, the Old Testament system of sacrificial law. And he's saying that that system of rites and ritual and ceremony whereby man gauged and determined what righteousness was and whereby God had disclosed what a standard of righteousness was. But I'd say this even beyond that, there's a lot of things that you and I in our life, we're going to have to learn to leave at the altar if we're going to go on with Jesus Christ. Uh, we've got to learn to meet with God and to speak with God and to deal with the matters of our life with God. And uh, so many of us, it would do us a help this morning. I'm tempted not even have an altar call, just so you don't think I'm trying to pad an altar call. Somebody say amen. But we will anyway, because we always have an altar call. But I, I'm not talking about coming here this morning. I'm talking about coming to Him this morning. And there's some of us, we need to come to Him this morning. When I read about an altar in the Word of God, the altar as a place, as a as an object, has a long and storied history. We find the uh, place of sacrifice all the way back in the Garden of Eden uh, whenever the sons of God would come to present themselves before the Lord. It would appear that after God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden that He permitted or allowed or maybe did it for him a place of sacrifice uh, to be made right there at the perimeter of the garden. And we read all the way back in Genesis chapter number 4 about Abel raising sacrificial sheep for the purpose of bringing to a place of sacrifice. This thing of needing an altar is not new, my friend. Mankind has always, fallen mankind, has always needed an altar to get to God. It's never been through our own righteousness, never been through our own ingenuity. It's never been, as Paul points out in the book of, of Acts, through art and man's device and man's wisdom. It's always been through the place of sacrifice, the place of the shed blood that we can approach unto God. And that has not changed in this dispensation of grace. The thing that has changed has not been the need for blood, just for what blood. And that's the only thing that has deviated in any way. So when I read through the Bible, I I find that an altar is a place that represents some things. For instance, of course, it's a place of sacrifice. It's a place where an animal would be brought and its blood shed and it placed upon the fires there on the altar and it be consumed for the pleasure of God. We find this all the way back in Genesis chapter number four. Not only that, I find an altar to be a place of service it was a place where men went and served God. We're blessed today that we live in a time, the New Testament church. And let me say the New Testament church is a blessing this morning. It's a privilege this morning. It's a holy thing this morning. It's a valuable thing this morning. We ought to praise God we can come into the house of God and worship God this morning. A lot of places in this world today where people are prohibited from doing it, but you and I, the only thing that kept us away from it was that heavy blanket this morning nothing else. We could be here today. What a blessing that is to be able to be here. But in the Old Testament, the place where they served God was uh, early on. It was merely a rudimentary altar. And then after the tabernacle was instituted, it became that structure of the tabernacle. And then later the temple. But all of this centered around this thing of the altar. The altar was the place where men went and did service to God. Can I say this morning, and I'm getting ahead in my message, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. The Lord Jesus, He is our sacrifice, number one. Amen? He is our sacrifice this morning. But number two, listen—he's the one we ought to be serving this morning. Whatever you're doing, it—if whatever you're doing—if you're not doing it for him, you're doing it for the wrong reason. Uh, Whatever you're doing, if you're not doing it to please Him and to honor Him, to glorify Him and to minister to Him, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. And it might impress me or it might impress somebody else, it might impress those around you, but it only impresses Him. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please Him. For He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of them that what, that diligently seek Him. It's a place of service. Number three, it's a place of surrender. It's a place where men would place themselves before God and they would say, Lord, whatever I am, that's what I want you to have. And that's what I want you uh, to transform and to change. Uh, we had a preacher come back this way and all the preachers I bring in are a little bit better than me. I don't bring anybody that's way better than me or you'll get rid of me. But I try not to be bring anybody that's worse than me or you won't show up. So some, some of you don't show up even when it's me, so... I try to always get somebody just a little bit better than me. And uh man of God that came through and preached a while back, preached about Job, sitting himself down in the ash pile. Uh, there in the book of Job after his whole family has been ravaged and wrecked and all of his wealth uh, has uh, gone up in flames. And the Bible says that Job then went and sat down in the ashes and took a posture and began to scrape himself. And the man of God, probably more astutely than I can this morning, pointed out to us that here's what Job was doing. Uh, everything that he had, all he couldn't offer no sheep because his sheep had all been stolen. He couldn't offer no silver or gold. It had all been took from... He couldn't even, as Jephthah did in the Old Testament, offer one of his children... For they were dead. All that Job had was himself. So he put himself in the ash pile and said, Lord, here I am. Do with my life what pleases you. The altar is a place where we surrender ourselves to God. It's not a place to wrestle with God like Jacob did of old. It's a place to surrender to God and say, Lord, here I am. You know, a lot of us, what we need this morning is we just need to give God control. Uh, We live our life thinking we've got control. We need to give God control and say, Lord, here I am. I'm yours. I belong to you. You do with my life whatever pleases you. It was a place of surrender. Not only that, it was a place of seeking. It was a place where men would go and try to understand and try to, try to uh, obtain the will and the mind of God. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that everywhere that Abraham went, he built an altar. One of the successes, one of the keys to the successes of Abraham's life was the fact that everywhere he went, he he built an altar. And you can just follow those altars and see the history of Abraham's life. Well, what was he doing? The Bible says he would build an altar and he would begin to call upon the name of the Lord. I'll go ahead and give you my last point before I get into my message. That wasn't the message. It wasn't that simple. Somebody say, Amen. there's more than that. But last point of my little introduction here it's not only a place of seeking, it's a place of supplication. You know what the purpose of the altar is? Everywhere Abraham went, everything he did, he said, I've got to hear from God about it. I've got to know what God says about it. I've got to seek God's face and seek God's mind about it. Some of us think, no wonder our lives are a mess. We don't pray about nothing. We just do things based on gut instinct or the advice of other people and then we're surprised whenever things fall to pieces. I remember when I was a youth pastor, and I feel for youth pastors. Man, it ain't easy. And I feel for young people because they got to put up with youth pastors. Somebody say in there. But I remember when I was a youth pastor, one of my chief frustrations is how young people would so often listen to other young people for advice in their life. And I, I, and I used to think to myself, that, that kid don't even tie their shoes right. And you're listening to them about who to date and who to marry and where to work and this, that, and the other. And they would, so often, they would make big life decisions, they'd say, well, my friend said. And I'd say, well, your friend's dumb. Don't listen to your friend. You need some kind of wisdom above that. But you know, something I've learned as we've got older, uh, you know, we grow up, but we don't always grow up. The truth is, most of us, if we're gonna look around us, try to get wisdom and advice, we're gonna find very few qualified. But can I tell you this, we can always look up and find the right answer. Anything you do, you're going to move. You're going to you're going to buy a vehicle. You're going to get a job. You're going to I don't know what you're going to do. You're going to get mad and hit somebody in the mouth. Whatever it is, pray about it first. We have an altar where we can go and hear from God. Imagine the money that people pour in to, to counseling and guidance and and all these things. And I'm not criticizing those. Listen, there's some folks need Dave Ramsey tell them how to spend their money. That's fine. I don't care. I can criticize. Them. But imagine all the money we pour into those things. When we have the God of glory sitting with bended ear ready to hear from us. I'm saying this morning, if you ain't convinced of it yet, I don't know what it'll take. We need an altar. We need an altar. We need a place we can meet with God. We need a place we can hear from God. We need a place when we've sinned that we can come and be reconciled unto God in the appropriate way. We need an altar. You know what? We have an altar this morning. We have an altar this morning. When I read in the Word of God here, I find four simple thoughts. I'll share them with you and we'll be done. Number one, when I read this passage, I notice the substance of the altar. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I'm talking about what's put on that altar. An altar is only good in as much as the right thing is placed upon it. All through the Old Testament, you'll find idolatrous altars. Sometimes you'll find that uh, there was even wicked kings of Israel that brought idolatrous altars and and put them in the tabernacle to set beside the brazen altar that God had patterned after the altar in heaven. And, and, you know, uh, the altar in and of itself is not necessarily the consecrating thing. It's what you put on the altar. This is one of the things that Paul's setting forth. He's saying they have an altar, but we have a different altar. He's talking about, number one, the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. He says uh, down here in in verse uh, number 11, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin burned without the camp. Now, I don't have to go into great detail. I know uh in, in this room of Bible students to explain the Old Testament system of sacrifice, but there were five sorts or or varieties of sacrifices that were be uh, were to be given. Not all of them were blood sacrifices. Some of them were peace offerings to the Lord, but they would take these animals. It might be a bullock. It might be a sheep. It, it might be a, a turtle dove. It might be any number of things. They'd bring it to God and and they would shed the blood and they would put it on the altar and it would be consumed and God honored that sacrifice. But you know, in the book of Hebrews, the apostle Paul reminds us that those sacrifices were only ever fit to foreshadow a greater sacrifice that had to be given for humanity to be made right with God. He tells us in chapter number nine, chapter number 10, that if the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, if it was possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, then would they not cease to have been offered? Now some of us were too educated for that kind of common sense. The Apostle Paul saying, listen, if they worked, they would have worked. But year after year, they'd have to come and offer these sacrifices over and over and over again. And every year on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the, the high priest would go and he would offer the sacrifice for the sins of the nation. And all that did was bring to remembrance every year the sins that they had committed before God. And It could never reconcile a man to the Lord. Then we find here in verse number 12, Wherefore, Jesus also that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, He suffered without the gate. We find not only the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament, but we find the beloved Son of the New Testament. Now again, I'm not going to belabor this, because you probably already know it this morning, but just in case there's somebody in this room that don't know, can I tell you that Jesus made Himself a sacrifice went in our stead, in our place, and suffered and died on the cross of Calvary, which by the way, to the greater context of this passage, was outside of the city gates. He didn't suffer in the tabernacle. He had to leave the tabernacle. He had to leave the temple. He went outside of the city being made a reproach being crucified out there as a male factor, as someone that deserved to die with disdain and with reproach. That's what the Hebrews writer is saying. He goes on to say, if we want to go to Jesus, we've got to go out of the tabernacle. If we want to go to Jesus, we have to go and identify with Him as, a, as the world saw Him as being a male factor. Now, He was perfect and He was sinless. But you know why the world looked at Him that way? Because He was bearing our sin. He was made sin for you and for I. He took our sin upon Him and then uh, the Apostle Paul is even more vivid, says that He became sin for us. God reached back His hand to smite sinful man, but He smote His own Son instead, for His Son became the sins of men. He is our sacrifice this morning. He is what sanctifies the altar. You and I, would we wouldn't be able to come to God without Jesus Christ. The only reason we can approach unto Him is because He did what He did on the cross of Calvary. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by Me. But listen, we have boldness and access, the book of Ephesians says, by His blood and by faith unto the Father. The Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, we can come boldly unto the throne of grace because of Him. Why? Because wherefore seeing we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has passed into the heavens, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. I'm saying this morning, He is our altar. He is our sacrifice. He is our meeting place with God. And understand this morning that Uh, He is the Savior of all men. The Bible says, especially of them that believe, he tasted death for every man. I don't know how we, I don't know how a man gets around that. He tasted death for every man, that he died for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. But understand this morning: if a man's going to meet with God, there's some conditions that are placed upon him. The Bible says here we have an altar. Then it goes on to say, whereof they have no right to eat which served the tabernacle. In other words, though Jesus died for all men, don't you believe that this morning? I believe God can save any man. I believe He died for every man. I believe He'll save any man that'll come unto Him in faith. I believe He desires to save any and everybody. I believe He desires, the Bible says, He's not willing that any should perish. That's one thing to say, I want something. It's another thing to say, I'm not willing for something, Right? It's one thing to say, well, I'd kind of desire that i kind of like that, but to say he's not willing that any should perish, that's to suggest that with all that is within his means uh, outside of tracing upon the free will of a man to make the choice that if God had his way, all would be saved. He's willing for men to make their own choices and he gave us free will. he respects that free will, but if God had his way in totality, everybody would be born again. He died for all men that they might be born again. But understand that if we're going to come to them, there's some things we got to recognize. Who doesn't have a right to eat at this altar? Well, I would say three people. And we sort of find this in our text here this morning. Number one, I would say this. The religious crowd has no right to eat at this altar. They say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says those that serve the tabernacle. It doesn't say serve in the tabernacle, by the way. It says serve the tabernacle. You know why that is? Because men that served in the tabernacle after the cross of Calvary weren't serving God anymore. They were serving the tabernacle. God had left the tabernacle. Amen? God had left the temple. He wasn't taking up residence in that place in the way that He had before. He had been revealed to us in the person of His only begotten Son. In Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And the Hebrews writer said that God who at sundry times and in divers manners hath spake unto man hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So when God left the tabernacle, they should have went with God. But if they stayed in the tabernacle, they weren't serving God anymore. They were serving the tabernacle. That's just pure religion is what that is. Religion is, is the trappings of the worship of God without a God to be worshipped. And that's what we find in the world around the state. In fact, I would say it this way. Those that were serving the tabernacle, they were looking to other sacrifices to get them to God. They weren't looking to the sacrifice that God had chosen anymore because God had fulfilled that Old Testament form of sacrifice in the person of Christ and put away that system of sacrifice. And now He pointed to the cross of Calvary and said, this is the sacrifice for man's sin. So when they served in the tabernacle, what were they doing? They were looking to other sacrifices to satisfy them. Can I say this this morning? If you're going to come to Jesus Christ, if you want to meet God at this altar, you have to be willing to put away all other forms of sacrifices. You have to recognize that no other system of of worship, no other system of, of attaining unto God can satisfy God in any way. He's not interested in your baptism to get you to heaven. He wants us to be baptized after we're saved in obedience to the Lord. Before everything fell apart, we was going to baptize a bunch of folks this morning and everybody got sick and quarantining and disappearing and missing and who knows what else, but we were going to baptize a bunch of folks. I believe in baptism. We got, that ain't a bathtub back there. Somebody say amen. I don't. I don't, I don't turn the heat up and just soak in it, right? For my nerve, that's a baptism. I believe in baptism this morning for the believer, but understand this, that baptism is not what God's looking for for a sacrifice. Whatever opinions of men that they may try to wrench and twist through the Word of God and from the Word of God, that's not what he's interested in this morning. Whatever efforts, and I don't want to get ahead in my message, but whatever efforts of righteousness we may display, that's not what he's looking for this morning. He's looking for one sacrifice. And that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The religious crowd, meaning those that are trusting in their religion to get them to heaven. They have no right to either. Why do they need that altar? If you can get to heaven on your own, why do you need a Savior? If you think you can get there, if your baptism can get there, why are you praying to Jesus? If your self-righteousness, now i go ahead and preach my next point because I'm preaching it anyway. Not only the religious crowd, but the righteous crowd. Or we might say the self-righteous crowd. Those looking to other sacrifices, but those looking to their own self-righteousness have no right to eat at this altar. They have no right to eat at this altar. The Bible says of the nation of Israel that were and still are to this day under judicial blindness from God. And there are, thank the Lord, there are Jews that can be born again by the grace of God and are born again by the grace of God, but it's by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. It's by the grace of God. It's not the works of the law. It's not the works of the tabernacle. It's not dietary law. It's not it. It's by the grace of God that they're born again, if they're born again at all. And there are Jews that can be born again, but as a nation, they are under judicial blindness to this very day. And you know what uh, the Apostle Paul said about that? Them having having rejected the righteousness of God, having disdained the righteousness of God, having set it aside, have went about to set, set up their own righteousness. Now what is that? Your own righteousness. That's self-righteousness. And I would say this, those that were persisting in the worship of the tabernacle even after the cross of Calvary were doing so because they thought that their efforts and good works could get them uh, favor with God. And you know what? If you believe that your own good works can get you there, you don't need Jesus. This is why the preaching of the cross is an offense to them which perish. Because it reminds them that not only are they deserving of hell but they are completely helpless to remedy their problem themselves. If you could do it on your own, why God send His Son? So in other words, if you're trying to get there through your own righteousness, you have no right to eat of this altar. But then I'd say there's a third crowd, and it might sort of all overlap a little bit. If it does, you just forgive me and thank the Lord for the extra five minutes it won't take for me to preach it. But I would say not only the religious crowd, and the righteous crowd, I'd say the rebellious crowd. Now you say, well, who would that be? Well, I would say it's those that are unwilling to go to the altar because they're unwilling to submit to God's authority in the first place. You see, if you believe that you have a higher authority than God, what are you doing at God's altar? And when I say God's altar, I'm talking about the personal Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying this, this crowd, and it's pervasive in society today that want to take their own will and dress it up in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ. And I, and honestly, every time I pray, I pray, I'll, I'll say it in Christ's name. Amen. I say that. I don't think there's anything inappropriate. I think it's a good biblical practice. But you understand that doing something in Christ's name is more than just taking His name and rubber stamping it on there. You understand that, right? When we're doing something in His name, it means we're doing it for His glory and for His will and for His purpose and for His pleasure. That's what it means. Those that want to try to establish their own form and system of worship, their own system of living their life and doing their thing, of making their decisions, and then say, well, I prayed about it, so everything's alright. When they didn't get no peace from God and they're not doing the will of God and they're not seeking the mind of God, that crowd have no reason for an altar. If you're just going to do your thing anyway, why do you need an altar? You listening this morning... I don't know if I'm enjoying this or not. But I'm committed to it. And I guess you are too, because you're still here. But I'm just telling you, if you're going to do your own thing, if you're going to live your own way anyway, what do you need Jesus for? If you're not going to listen to His wisdom and His guidance and His instruction, if you're not going to submit and surrender to His will, then quit calling yourself a Christian. And go ahead and admit that really, you're just a humanist. You're just worshiping your own will, your own mind, your own way. The fact is until we're willing to submit to Him we have no right to eat at that altar. We have no right to eat at that altar. So I see not only the substance. How do we get there? Am I preaching a message? Let's find it here. We see the substance of the altar. But then we see the sanctity of the altar. Not just anybody can eat there. And it's not related to a person. Uh, race or wealth or class or or whatever it is, but it's related to their interaction with God. Are they willing to admit that they're a lost sinner in need of Christ's salvation? And are they willing to admit that they cannot govern and run their own life? They need God to lead and to guide them in their life. And I'm, by the way, I'm not just talking about lost folks. I am when I'm talking about coming to Christ for salvation. I'm talking about saved folks. I'm saying you and I as child of God, if we're not willing to let God govern our life, we need to quit pretending like we're living like a Christian because we're not. I would say there's some sanctity to this altar, but then I notice as I serve, uh, as I move a little on, I notice there's some separation uh, about this altar. The Bible says in verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. You know, part of the reason we're having such a tough time, anybody having, to, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, just, just grunt or something. Anybody having a tough time? Ugh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, part of the reason we, me, I ain't talking about you, you you got, you're more spiritual than me, but part of the reason I have a tough time, it, we've done, drove our tent states too deep. We've got attached to this world, we fell in love with it, we fell in love with the comfort and experiences that it provides, and now when it's burning down around us, we're just, we got the vapors, we don't know what to do. The fact of the matter is, we never get this attached to this world in the first place. We're only here for a short time. We seek no continuing city. That's not, we haven't here no continuing city, but we seek one to come. If we're gonna eat at this altar, there's gonna be some things we're gonna be leaving behind. I notice that the two-fold paradigm of separation in the life of the believer is spoken of here. First, we see there is separation from the, this wicked world that we're living in. Now, I'd remind you that in the context here, the Apostle Paul is talking to to Judaizers or people that are being delivered from Judaizers. He's talking about those that had grown up culturally in the service of the tabernacle, but now they're making a choice to step away from that and see salvation in Jesus Christ. And so when he's talking about leaving the camp, he's talking about leaving the service of the tabernacle and the reliance and dependence upon those things for salvation. He's not saying that Jews ought to quit being Jews. He's not saying Gentiles ought to become Jews. He done had that argument with Peter in the book of Galatians. He's not mad at him for culturally being Jews, but he's saying that if in your cultural identity as a Jew you are seeking to find satisfaction and salvation in the service of the tabernacle, that's not going to work. You can't reconcile that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a vivid illustration, he, he says to him: He says, Listen, Jesus, when he died for your sins, even he was kicked out of the camp. How are you going to say that's my Savior, that's my Lord, that's who I love, that's my Master, that's who I want to be like, and then run with the crowd that kicked him out of the camp? Now, let me tell you something. You and I, and there may, I don't know, I don't know. I didn't take no 23andMe test when we came in. I ain't got nobody's DNA, but probably the vast majority of us is Gentiles. No, we're Appalachians. Somebody say Amen. Uh, most of us, we're, we're, we're Gentiles here today. So for us, the cultural world system that kicked Jesus out of camp was not Old Testament Judaism, but rather it was the secular, humanistic world that hated Him and loathed Him and that nailed Him to a cross. Can I remind you, He was put there by both Jew and Roman. Jew and Roman. Can I remind you, it was Jewish voices that that delivered Him to the cross and it was Roman nails that fixed Him there. The whole world had a part in crucifying Him. So if the if the Jew that Paul is writing to, he's saying, listen, you can't be a part of that old system that was incompatible, that that called him a malefactor and a blasphemer and said that he was unrighteous and wicked and, and kicked him out of the camp and nailed him to the cross and treated him like a common criminal. You can't run with that crowd and say he's your Lord. And what does that say about you and I as Gentiles today? It suggests this. We can't run with that crowd that hates him. We can't run with that crowd that loathes him. We can't run with that crowd. Listen, there was a man came out and said, and people just, people are dumb. If I don't get an amen about anything else this morning, I ought to get a good hearty amen about that. People are dumb. Thank you. I know at least you're honest people this morning. A fella came out a while back, a militant atheist, and it's a funny man, militant atheist. How, how dumb is I'm I'm a militant atheist. I believe God don't exist so hard, I'm mad about it. You know? And I mean, just, well, how absurd, you know? Uh, but a militant atheist, they say all this shock and all stuff because they think it's going to really impress Christians. And you know, maybe a hundred years ago, people didn't have the internet, it did. But, you know, we, we, we just, we just lived through an election. Don't nothing shock us anymore, you know? So, but, but a guy came out back of this and made the same, said, if Jesus came back, I'd crucify him again. And he thought that was really impressive and shocking. You know, the reality is this, though. The world would. The world would. You said, no, preacher, more we're more enlightened. We're living here in America, founded in Christian principles. We're here in the Bible Belt. We're in the buckle of the Bible Belt. Listen, we're in deep red country. I mean, listen, you, you don't really believe. It. Oh, yes, I do. Christ said, listen, the world hated me and it's going to hate you. In fact, he went a step further and said, it ain't even you it hates. Don't get your feelings hurt. It's me in you that the world hates. So it tells me this, listen, we have an altar, but if we want to come to that altar, if we want to utilize it to the full, if we want to enjoy fellowship with God the way that God desires to have fellowship with us, if we want to live in His will and let Him get the most out of our life, if we want to do that, we going not have to leave that world behind. There is a separation from this wicked world. But then I would say this, there is a separation unto a coming kingdom. He says, for here we have no continuing city probably good they'd burn it down even if we had one. This world, you all right this morning? They'd burn it down if we had one. But you know, they can't burn, they can't touch what God has laid up in store for us. We have no continuing city here. We need to quit living like we do. I, I, I'm, I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about me this morning. I'm preaching at me this morning. Don't get mad. I ain't even talking about you. You think it's all about you. I ain't even talking. I'm preaching at me this morning. And I'm saying, we ought not get discouraged. This world's just doing what this world's always done. Maybe a little louder, maybe a little bolder than it's done it before, but exactly like the Bible said that it would. We need to recognize this world has never been our home. And shame on us for believing that it ever was. Here, we we have no continuing city, but guess what? We do seek one to come. Now, what's Paul saying by that? He's saying, you ought to quit investing in this world and start investing in the world to come. We ought to quit laying up treasures down here. And we ought to start laying up treasures up there. I don't believe God's impressed by poverty any more than I think He's impressed by prosperity. But I think so many of us are paupers as regards to spiritual treasures. In other words, I'm not saying you have to sell everything you've got and, and go be a monk. If you do, don't sell it. You won't get a good price. Just give it to me. But I don't think you ought to do that. I'm not saying God wants you to do that. All I'm saying this morning is, if we really believe that heavens are home, eternity's real, and that that's what matters, then we ought to start living that way. We ought to start living that way. And you know what I find? I find that when I'm living for this world, I don't really feel like I need an altar. But when I start living for that world to come, I find that I can't get away from that altar. And I would even go a little deeper and say this: I find that when I get distracted with the with the the trappings of this world, I find that my 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 perspective and my focus on Jesus Christ diminishes. But you know what I found? I found that when I get my heart set on heaven, when I get my head set towards eternity, I find out that I need Him more presently every day of my life. We have an altar and I see here uh, the separation of the altar and finally, and I'm done this morning, I'm not going to dwell on it, but look at verse 15. The Bible says this, by Him therefore... Let us, by the way, what's it been talking about? It's been talking about an altar. And then it says, by Him. He is our altar. By Him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So every, sac- every altar exists for the purpose of a sacrifice. Now, I understand that Christ is our sacrifice. Don't you believe that this morning? He's our sacrifice. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He paid the price for us. He's the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And yet here it says that there are some sacrifices we can give. And you know, it's a reminder to me that in the Old Testament, I hit on this, I hinted at it, but it's a reminder that of those Old Testament sacrifices of the five categories, you had three of them that you would give with the shedding of blood But then you had two of them that you wouldn't give that way. You'd give it with other things. You'd you'd give it with with grain that would be presented to God or bread that would be presented to God or a drink that would be poured out unto God. And it's a reminder of this. Listen, Jesus died for our sins. What He did on Calvary was sufficient and it is enough. When He said it is finished, it is finished. He don't need your help getting Him to heaven this morning. He has done the work. The Bible also says... In the book of Ephesians, you know, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which we were before ordained to walk therein. Walking with God doesn't mean idleness. Walking with God doesn't mean apathy. What it means is we're not trying to get to heaven through our own means, but we are trying to do some things for God because he was so good that he gave us his son to die for us. We ain't doing things to get to heaven. We're doing things because we're going to heaven. So there are some sacrifices we give. What are those sacrifices? The first thing I notice here is the praise of our lips. It says in verse 15, Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. Can I tell you this? One of the greatest things you can do in your life is to verbally, clearly, intelligibly praise God for what He's done for you. I, listen I, I ain't afraid of raising a hand in a service i do it myself That don't bother me i ain't afraid of shouting i ain't afraid of saying amen i ain't afraid of, i ain't afraid of running a lap except i'd probably fall and hurt myself amen but but it don't make me nervous now i mean it, it don't it don't bother me a single bit but that's not what it's talking about we're here when it says praise to god it's talking about clearly intelligibly communicating to god and to others praise for what he's done in our lives well'll be telling everybody what jesus has done and is doing for us And listen, there's a lot of stuff we might do for Him, but if we're not willing to praise Him, that's the first sacrifice. God says, what I want from you is I want you to tell me and tell others about how good and glorious I am. I see the praise of our lips. Number two, I see the performance of our duty. Verse 16, but to do good. I love that, man. I love that. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, do right if the stars fall. Uh, Some people said he said, do right till the stars fall. Then he corrected me. He said, no, I said, do right if the stars fall. I think, I think that's good, simple, sound Bible instruction. To do good, forget not. You know what it tells me? How often do we forget to do good? In other words, your life, what God expects out of you, whatever else you may be doing for Him, He wants you to do what He asks of you. I've noticed this with my kids, and if you've raised kids, you probably know this to be true. I'll tell my little boy. I'll say you need to clean up that, that room, or you need to do this and do that, and he'll want to do everything else but that. I'm talking about stuff that if I told him to do, he wouldn't want to do. But because it is the it it is it is the you know abandonment of what he's been asked to do, he will gladly do those other things. Now you'd think, well, preacher, use reverse psychology, but he's got that figured out. Then he just don't do either of them. so. But I'll tell him, I'll tell him to do so, and it's amazing to me the things he'll do, and sometimes he'll do things for me. He'll bring me things, he'll do things, all to avoid doing what I have asked him to do. Boy, wonder what God thinks about you and I. All the things that we do, and yet we'll have an area of disobedience in our life, where we will not yield to God and do his will. But preacher, I I go to church! That's good, you ought to go to church. If you wasn't going to church, God would be dealing with you about it. But is that what He's dealing with you about? Or is it some other area of your life? And you're trying to get God distracted from that by doing this. Say, so, preacher, I ought to quit church. No, you ought to keep going to church. You ought to do the one and not neglect the other. is what the Bible says. You ought to do what's right in every area of your life to the best of your ability. But preacher, what if I forget to do good? That's what the Holy Ghost is there for. He'll remind you when you've not done what you need to do. But the reality is this. Our life, listen, the things that come off of our lips is no... No exchange or substitution for what comes out of our life. One of the things we can do if we really love God the way that we ought to, if we really think He's worthy, worthy of our life, is to live that life for Him. Then I noticed this. I thought this was interesting. I had to think a little bit about it, study a little bit about it. But it says, to do good in verse 16, and to communicate, forget not. Now this in and of itself, fix most marriages. Do good and communicate. But, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul or the Holy Spirit either is talking about. That word communicate there, it's used a bunch in the Bible. and Usually it's always talking about fellowship with believers. And sometimes it's talking about fellowship with God. So when it's talking about communicating, it's not just saying communicating information, relating information to someone, but it's talking about an open line of communication. Now he does not say here who he's talking about communicating with. And everything the Holy Ghost does and does not do is on purpose. So I think that gives us maybe a little bit of liberty to consider both applications of it. In other words, He wants not just the praise of our lips and the performance of our duty, but He wants our presence in fellowship. Fellowship, number one, I would say, with the Savior. In fact, one of the places that that word is used, it's, it's presented to us as the word fellowship, but it's in First 1 John 1, 1.3. It says, that which we have seen and heard and declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, if we really love Him, we'll want to spend time with Him. You say, preacher, what does He want? Well, those of you that are parents, what do you want? Uh, you probably have got to a place in your life where there's nothing your kids can afford to buy you that you want. Uh, I, You know, I, I've started and I, I ain't criticizing my, my siblings. I mean, I will criticize my siblings, but that's not what I'm doing right now. They can do anything they want. And uh, they, can, they can give mom and dad. They can go buy everything they want to buy them, get them everything they But I've started for the birthdays and stuff. I'll take them out to eat somewhere. And uh, mainly because there's nothing I can afford for them, particularly for dad. There's nothing I could afford that he wants anymore. I could keep buying him pies and coffee cups and flashlights, but he's got all of them that he needs. And so I've instead thought to myself, well, maybe if I can just go and buy a steak, sit down and just spend time with him. And he can correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> but I, I think he's enjoyed that, appreciated that. I know for me, uh, my little boy bought me a Christmas gift this past year. He wanted to buy me a Christmas gift, but you know, and I like what he got me, but it really wasn't even about what he got me. It's that he wanted to do it, Mike. He wanted to do it. And then uh, he wanted to spend time with me. You know, really, that's what matters. Most of us parents, what we want more than anything, and it's more so, I'm told, as your kids get up and grown and get out of the house. What you long for is just to spend time with them. And you know, the relationship of parents and children, the biological one, is not all that different from the relationship between God and His children. Or if He wouldn't have drawn that illustration between the two. You know what He wants. No matter what else you're doing for Him, if you're not spending time with Him, you're not giving Him what He wants. How do I spend time with Him, preacher? Well, you pray to Him. That's you talking to Him. You read His Word. That's Him talking to you. You live. And I love the way it says it here. Man, the Holy Ghost always does it the way it ought to be done. He says to communicate an open line of communication. What does fellowship with God mean? It means an open line of communication. In other words, it means living with Him in the seat right beside you, day in and day out. Because guess what He is? Not treating Him like you got a regular meeting at 6 a.m. in the morning and then you're going to part ways and you go to work and Him go be God. But rather that He's ever present with you. And He is ever present. You remember what Paul says a little earlier in the chapter? Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for as much as it is written. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He's always with us. So you know what we ought to do? We ought to start spending time with Him. We have an altar this morning. When was the last time you've been to an altar? I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about when was the last time you and the Lord met together and dealt with areas of your life and you spoke to Him and let Him have His will and His way. Maybe that you sought His wisdom and counsel. Maybe there's some area of disobedience that you've brought to Him and asked Him to forgive you of and cleanse you up. I wonder when the last time we've been to, not this altar, but to that altar was. And I believe this morning, if it's been a little while, even if it hasn't, we'd be well served to bow our heart and head before God and meet Him at the altar. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. Now, this physical altar is open. You can come anytime you want. You don't have to wait for the first note to be played. And I hope that you'll be obedient to the Lord this morning. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I wonder this morning if God's dealt with your heart. If He has, would you meet Him down here? Preacher, I don't have to be at that altar. You do not. You absolutely do not. But it could be if God said, meet me there, I would think I would try to not make an issue out of that. I'd just meet Him there. So if He's dealt with you about something, if He wants you down here, I want you down here. If He doesn't want you here, I want you to be obedient to the Lord. Whatever you do, I want you to speak to the Lord in these moments. Make sure your heart and your mind and your life is where it needs to be with Him.